Hi folks, Neil here. We want to help answer all your questions about London. That's why you can listen to this guide in the Circa app for iPhone and get all the show notes, pictures, maps, and links you need to find everything we tell you about in this London guide. Best of all, in the Circa app, you can message a Circa concierge. You can get any question about London answered by real people right here. The latest galleries, West End shows, how to do the big attractions right, how to use the tube, where to find an absolutely beautiful Sunday roast right now. We are giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, no AI ever. And for a limited time, it's completely free. The Circa Travel app is available in the App Store right now or at circatravel.com. Welcome to Circa. In this, the first episode of two, we're going to be dancing our way through one of the most influential music cities on earth, London. Before we get started, it's important to note that, yes, this is all about London's role as a major player on the global music circuit. But, like the food and the historic landmarks, the evolution of the UK capital, not to mention its character, can be understood through diving into its musical roots. We're going to tell you a lot, but don't worry. There will be maps, notes and info on the places mentioned in these guide episodes in the Circa app. Let's tune in, turn on, and rock out. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. T-Rex. The Who. Pink Floyd, The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, Radiohead, The Cure, Madness, The Kinks, The Jam, Roxy Music, Amy Winehouse, Blur, Oasis, Adele, a universe of sounds and scenes that indelibly etched this city on the map for music lovers worldwide. Punk. Scar, British reggae, heavy metal, soul, blues, indie, glam rock, Brit pop, grime, trap. A magical mashup of musical genres with roots all over the world. But one thing in common London made them famous. London's one of the most multicultural destinations on the planet. In a city of over 9 million people, about 30% of them were born outside of the UK. So it makes sense that the sounds of the city are as rich and layered as the people who live here. Some of the world's most iconic bands and albums have been written right here in the UK capital. The city hosts seriously rock-worthy venues too. Some outlandish and gilded with gold, others so small and nondescript you'd blink and miss them. This is a city where the world's greatest rockers cut their teeth. Where punks birthed pure anarchy and psychedelic synths formed the soundtrack of the 60s. 
No doubt, the last century of London's melodic exports have put it firmly on the global music map. And while a lot of the music might feel quintessentially British, it's actually from everywhere. In this episode, I'm going to guide you through London's best back catalogue, from the interwar years all the way up to modern-day pop, trap and grime. Ready to rock? Hymns, strings and music halls. Around the mid-1800s, London was going through crazy social expansion and change. Farmland got cleared, buildings sprang up, docks bulged under imports, and the city sped up to accommodate the Industrial Revolution. As always, culture was the mirror. Music, art and entertainment got a welcome shake-up, in part because the elevation of the working classes supported new coffee houses, saloons and taverns. As the British Empire expanded, pricey sit-down venues and elitist establishments got some new competition. Places where patrons could eat, drink, smoke, dance and do business deals on their own terms. This heralded the arrival of the Great Music Hall and, in turn, a different kind of social scene that was open to all. From gymnastics to live music, theatre and stand-up comedy, everything about these spaces was designed for inclusivity and the everyday worker. Perhaps the greatest living relic of the historic music hall is the city's iconic Royal Albert Hall. You'll find it in the posh, museum-heavy neighbourhood of South Kensington. To look at, the Royal Albert is full-on architectural eye candy, curvaceous and imposing. Keep your eyes peeled for the terracotta letters above the frieze. They're a nod to various religious and historical quotations. The Royal Albert was opened by Queen Victoria in memory of her husband in 1871, who died six years earlier. For a while after its opening, the acoustics of this supposed grand dame of music halls were actually pretty rubbish. It was only after several attempts to soundproof the hall's giant glass and raw iron dome without much success that floating fiberglass saucers that look kind of like mushrooms were installed in the 60s the sound quality transformed. So much so that it inspired the designers of the Sydney Opera House, who also incorporated the fibreglass mushrooms into their plans. This phenomenal hall has hosted every kind of classical musician, sci-fi conference, suffragette rally, sports events, and some of the greatest rock stars on earth. Oh, and while there's no specific dress code, it's definitely not a jeans and trainers kind of vibe. We've linked you to the programme in the notes. Another music and arts venue that helped to shift the way everyday Victorian Londoners took in musical entertainment is North London's People's Palace, also known as Alexandra Palace, or Ali Pali, as the locals know it. It was renamed after the Princess of Denmark, who had married Prince Edward in 1863. Perched on the scenic outcrop of Muswell Hill in North London, this imposing rectangular-shaped palace offers insane views of the city, which is what the original architect Owen Jones hoped for when he designed it in 1859. 
The venue opened in 1873, but after just 16 days, tragedy struck. A fire took hold of the central dome, but the venue's hilly location meant getting enough water up there to fight the flames was impossible. The fire gutted most of the building. When the palace was rebuilt, just a few years after, the architects learned their lesson. Four large water tanks were installed on each corner tower. The Who, Led Zeppelin, Queen, The Stone Roses and 90s indie pop band Blur, plus a thousand other megawatt global musicians have also performed here over the years. Pink Floyd headlined here in 1967 in a psychedelically infused day festival called the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, stories of which have become legend. During Yoko Ono's spaced-out art performance, Cut Piece, the audience was invited to cut pieces of fabric from her dress until she was naked. American pop artist Andy Warhol allegedly sat in his car the whole time, refusing to talk to all the acid-tripping mortals. Each Sunday, the park that surrounds Ali Pali hosts a cracking farmer's market with quality local organic produce and street food. You'll find it just down the hill from the palace on the southern Muswell hillside. And of course, if you can, head inside the palace to catch a performance. You won't regret it. Book your tickets in advance as concerts and gigs sell out fast. High society, wartime revelry and jazz. Before the end of the First World War, American jazz, ragtime and blues had crept onto the British airwaves. US troops brought this music with them when they arrived in Europe. And demand for this sound followed, with various bands putting on shows at the London Palladium in the city's West End. It's one of London's biggest and longest-running performance venues. In 1937, an American ensemble called the Cotton Club Review arrived from New York City to perform at the Palladium. 60 of Harlem's finest performers stormed the stage twice a day for five weeks. Even though the British press weren't subtle with their racist reviews, the Cotton Club Review was a sellout. It still goes down in the Palladium's history as one of the most frenzied performances of swing, rhythm and blues. Heading inside this historically rich venue today, be dazzled by the three-tier auditorium of curving red velvet seats, gold-gilded interiors and wooden panelling. Today, the Palladium's programme is less rhythm and blues and more stand-up comedy, but there's still some great musical acts if you book ahead. When the likes of American jazz supremos Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington made it to London during the 20s and 30s, they stoked the fires of jazz lovers even more. The bar got raised, and local British musicians began to venture into London's first rhythm clubs, which in turn opened up the space for black musicians to be taken a lot more seriously. New pioneers for a more celebratory, vital sound that helped sustain London during the war years and beyond. The BBC blasts jazz over the airwaves, while the most respected music magazine of the age, Melody Maker, began writing about this new sound, even if the establishment found it threatening and the undercurrent of racism persisted. 
The number one rhythm club opened in London's shopping district of Regent Street in 1933, off the back of an advertisement in Melody Maker calling for members of this new hot rhythm venue to come and share in their appreciation for this startling sound. It was the first of many rhythm clubs to shake the capital out of its post-war slump and incubate British jazz, both in spoken word and music. In just two years, 100 more hot rhythm clubs popped up all over the UK, but the majority landed in London. Perhaps the most influential was the long-standing Café de Paris. In the 30s, it was a sumptuous, iconic example of London's jazz age. High society, film stars and politicians flocked here for performances of hot jazz artists visiting from the States. The cafe even attracted a party-hard clientele during World War II, when jitterbugging dance moves helped to shake off the anxieties of war. The Café de Paris was the last venue still standing from the late 20s, and tragically it closed in 2020. But the influence and impact of jazz, blues and swing live on across London, if you know where to look. Let's head to Kingley Street, a low-key side street in bustling Soho. We're here for the intimate Ain't Nothing But The Blues Bar, a small bar with big personality. It's been here since the 90s, but feels rougher and aged around the edges, in a good way. Acts from both sides of the Atlantic make up the bill of live jam sessions, with two acts minimal daily and more on the weekends. You could be tapping your heels to deep southern blues, jazz or more folky stuff, Head down on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday evening to catch the venue's legendary blues jam. Empire Windrush, Caribbean Calypso and Dancehall. As World War II came to a close, a German cruise liner named Empire Windrush moored at Tilbury Docks in Essex. This port sits 25 miles downstream from London Bridge, and it's still a key docking spot. Back in 48, this ship brought 1,027 volunteers from all over the Caribbean diaspora. They were recruited by the UK government to help rebuild London in the post-war effort. and they brought with them an exotic medley of Latin American jazz, blues, calypso, gospel and reggae music that was already oozing out of the Caribbean. Plus, of course, some amazing food. Check out the London Eat Here episode for more on that. When the Windrush hit UK soils, the music scene in Britain changed forever. Now, may I ask your name? Lord Kitchener. Lord Kitchener. Now, I'm told that you are really the king of Calypso singers. Is that right? Yes, that's well, now, will you true. sing for us? Right now. Yes. London is the place for me. One particular Trinidadian artist to walk down the ship's gangplank was Lord Kitchener. You can go to France or America, India, Asia or Australia, but you must come back to London City. He'd made a name back in the Caribbean for his swaggering, Creole-accented, off-the-cuff lyrics that were being performed during wartime for American troops and in the swing clubs that defined New York City in the mid-40s. His arrival in the UK was no different, and he quickly earned a nickname on the London circuit as the Grand Master of Calypso and made waves with his song, London is the Place for Me. London 
Kitchener wrote it on the boat on the way over, but his optimism for life in London quickly changed. This was a city still dealing with racism and hostility. The sunny vibes of Calypso, a kind of Trinidadian folk music, were actually splashed with satire and peppered with political commentary. London life for the first generation of Windrushers was anything but a walk in the park. But the music offered an outlet to their frustrations, and the mockery within the lyrics a chance to connect the audience through wit and double entendre. It's a shame, it's unfair, but what can you do? The colour of your skin makes it hard for you. You can tour the world, you still will get no place. Every door is shut in your face. So boys, if you prong, they say you can stick around. If you white, well, everything's all right. But if your skin is dark, no use. You like the Caribbean immigrants that came over on the boat, Calypso has also endured. And it also helped pave the way for the arrival of ska music and rock steady in the 60s, which then birthed reggae at the end of the 60s too. This is a Victoria Line train to Brixton. Please stand clear of the closing doors. Speaking of which, let's head to one of London's central hubs for reggae, just south of the river, in the buzzing Afro-Caribbean neighbourhood of Brixton. For decades, Brixton has been a key hub for Afro-Caribbean communities and their musical roots, thanks to the Windrush generation settling here back in the late 40s. Check out Windrush Square, just a couple of minutes from the Brixton Tube. It was built to honour the original community who landed here. Immigrants struggled to be socially accepted in post-war Britain, so the melodies and cultural riches of these communities stayed more or less in their own neighbourhoods. No doubt, this part of town has definitely seen its fair share of racial tension. First in the late 40s and 50s, and then again in the 80s. Brit punk rock band The Clash captured this era of tension perfectly in the song Guns of Brixton, a heavily reggae-influenced song that echoes the discontent, the police heavy-handedness, and the economic austerity that hit London hard in the 80s. It was the first song to be composed by Brixton-born Clash bassist Paul Simonon. Then, of course, there was also father of dub poetry in the 80s too, Lyndon Quezzy Johnson's lyricism on the Great Insurrection. A young black Brit originally from Clarendon, Jamaica, Johnson used his music to reverse a tired and one-sided rhetoric that the black man was violent and aggressive. The riots were about emancipation and a fight against oppression and not an excuse for violence. Brixton's music scene has always been as hot as the Caribbean street food you'll find here and get it from the bustling daily market close to the tube but just hold your nose for the dried salt cod. You'll still find British ska, reggae and, of course, calypso in a handful of venues dotted around and just off the main street, just as it was in the Windrush era. Hootenanny serves great Caribbean street food each Thursday and all through the weekend, so you can have your jerk chicken fix and live jazz calypso and reggae in one sitting. Another buzzing option for live Jamaican jazz, Afrobeat and reggae is the Ephra Hall Tavern. The house band's performance is always top-notch and the intimacy of the crowd and the musicians make this place a knockout. If you want rhythm, soul and jugs of freezing cold red striped beer, this one's for you. Hi everyone. Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. 
Real people on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The 50s. The impact of grassroots skiffle and modern Americana. Well, now then, people are encouraged, of course, to look at birds as they are to uh, look at all sorts of things. But one thing that is sometimes not encouraged, according to the words of a song, is skiffle. And here is a song called Mama... As reggae made waves across South London, another sound that seemed to come out of nowhere was skiffle. Say what? Skiffle is the musical genre that time forgot, and many music snobs would argue that's a good thing. But bear with me, because this random 50s subgenre might have also given the Beatles a big stepping stone into the limelight. Loosely defined as an experimental ensemble of homemade instruments, Skiffle is sort of a DIY blues and jazz hybrid. Many budding Skiffle bands were mocked by the British press, but teens loved it because it was something different to the tired music from their parents' radios. A young Jimmy Page went on a BBC talent show and played Mama Don't Want to Skiffle Anymore with his tween band. Who knew he was cutting his teeth on Skiffle ahead of forming Led Zeppelin? Meanwhile, a fresh-faced John Lennon set up his own Skiffle group called The Quarrymen in 1957. Whether it was a flash in the pan or not, Skiffle marinated a new kind of rock sensibility in Soho and beyond. Soho was home to the Flamingo Club on Wardour Street. It didn't survive the onslaught of time, but keep your eyes peeled for the blue plaque that's attached to the brickwork at number 33 to 37. It commemorates a club that today is a key venue in the UK's music history. Blue plaques, by the way, are something to look out for as you wander this hood. They're a part of the English Heritage Organisation and link the people of the past to the buildings of the present. There's a collection of them dotted around London for certain musicians including Jimi Hendrix, Keith Moon, the drummer from The Who, and John Lennon. We've popped a blue plaque map of London's famous musical spots in the notes in case you fancy a bit of a treasure hunt. Flamingo was one of the first clubs in London to have a fully amped-up, eardrum-bursting sound system donated by ska musicians from the Caribbean. Performances from Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday and other jazz stars helped earn it a nickname as London's miniature Harlem. A proper gangster kind of venue, it didn't have a drinks licence and drug fueled all-nighters were the norm. Punters loved it. The Stones, The Who... Hendrix and Brian Jones, who came with Paul McCartney once to see the Birds play a set. Everyone who was anyone, including the groupies, mingled here. The Flamingo left its own legacy on London as the hub of mod subculture, a culturally inclusive space that promoted black DJs and musicians and where jazz and R&B artists mingled. 
everyone from Eric Clapton to Mick Fleetwood could be found either on stage or in the crowd. The club was one of a handful that levelled the musical playing field and helped play a vital role in the development of British rhythm and blues forever. The 60s British Invasion By the swinging 60s, the capacity for music to unite the masses had gained even more ground. This was a decade of extreme liberation and artistic expression, a moment when rhythm and blues-loving, pill-popping, fashion-flaunting modernists, known as mods, clashed with the other tribe of the age, the rockers. Between them, they were pretty much responsible for London's sexual, social and cultural revolution. And London's Carnaby Street in Soho was ground zero for all of it. Many up-and-coming bands would hang here, bringing a particular type of swag and sass to the streets of this neighbourhood. The groupies followed adoringly. Bands like The Stones, The Who and The Small Faces started strolling down Carnaby, shopping in the new Ben's boutiques and flirting with hangers-on. If you want to hear more about the swinging 60s fashion here, we've got a whole episode on that in this guide. But most importantly, they were here to perform at the Marquee Club, just off Carnaby, on Mordor Street. The Marquee is considered one of the most influential music venues in the city. And it first opened around the corner on Oxford Street in 1958. But sadly, it didn't stand the test of time. And today, it's turned into a not-quite-so-rock-and-roll pub, but you can definitely spy a blue plaque if you pop in for a pint here. During a sweaty summer in 62, the Stones were booked to perform their first ever gig at the Marquee, even though frontman Mick Jagger was quick to point out, I hope they don't think we're a rock and roll outfit. Of course, they killed it. Bands like The Animals and The Yardbirds, with Eric Clapton on lead guitar, soon followed. And overnight, the marquee became a kind of crucible for a sound that had London by its eardrums. And its knickers too, let's be honest. Over the next two decades, the club changed locations, but it didn't lessen its impact. Some of the most important artists of the 60s and 70s played here. Hendrix, Bowie, Cream, Pink Floyd, King Crimson. The marquee club has often been described as the most important venue in the history of European pop and rock music. Not only for having been a key venue in the development of London's music culture for over four decades, but also as a vital hub for important artists and music scenes. All through the 60s, it blew open the doors for all kinds of new sounds. Acid rock, progressive rock, folk rock, hard rock, synth pop, riffs that thrashed and fizzed on a stage ignited by a raw energy that London hadn't seen before. And the city couldn't get enough. Then, in walked Hendrix. Johnny Allen Hendrix, or Jimmy, if you like, landed in London's post-war emancipation right on time. His youth, his flamboyance, his fashion, sourced from Carnaby Street, obviously, and, of course, his ability to reduce people to tears or orgasms when he started playing his signature Fender Stratocaster. Travelling to London from America with his new manager, the ex-bassist of the animals, Chaz Chandler, 
they spontaneously agreed to change his name from Johnny to Jimmy on the flight over. The rest, as they say, is history. In Soho, head to Ronnie Scott's on Frith Street. It's arguably one of the best spots for blues and jazz worldwide, period. And it's the last venue that Hendrix played before he died. Plush velvet curtains and gilded furnishings have cocooned the best of rock, blues and jazz royalty here. Prince, Nina Simone, Miles Davis and Chet Baker. They've all stunned audiences here. I mean, come on. The club itself was opened by East London Jewish jazz saxophonist Ronnie Scott in 59. He was one of the first in a group of musicians to work on steamliner ships in the mid-40s. The ship would dock in New York City, exposing Scott and his fellow musicians to bebop, a new kind of jazz that was causing a stir in the Big Apple. Today, Ronnie Scott's is a proper London institution and a hub for top musicians from all over the world. Settle into the club's dark, decadent and totally irresistible interior for something special. But definitely book ahead. The era and erotica of 70s glam rock. How much of this is fun to you? It ain't fun at all, is it? It's not fun to you at all? No, of course it ain't. It's, it's, it's all very well as long as you're doing them, but one of these days they're going to do you, see, and that's a bit different, isn't it? By the mid to late 60s, the rock scene had firmly dug its heels into London. Two working-class youth subcultures had literally gone to war across the UK in different towns, with hundreds of fights and arrests making it into the national press. The mods, one group, were defined as highly stylized and sporting short groomed haircuts, while the rockers, another, were more of a grease T-Birds aesthetic. Slicked, gelled hair, biker jackets and lovers of rock and roll. It was an era that inspired the Who's film Quadrophenia, which got released a decade later. At this point, the Beatles began rising in popularity, but refused to be put in either camp. When asked which one he was, John Lennon just said, neither, whim mockers. Obviously, I can't take you through London's musical past and present without hitting up the most famous recording studio on the planet, Abbey Road. The Beatles album of the same name was released on Apple Records in 1969, not the same Apple as your iPhone, by the way. And today, this unassuming road in North London is possibly home to the most famous crosswalk on the planet. You'll find it in the leafy North London enclave of St John's Wood, near Lord's Cricket Ground, and nestling up close to the celebrity horn of Primrose Hill. Now, that pic of the band crossing the road? It was a last-minute thing. Photographer Ian McMillan, a friend of John and Yoko's, roped a policeman into stopping traffic while he clambered up a stepladder to get the shot. It took just five shots. McCartney was responsible for picking the cover shot. It was the fifth frame and the only one where they were all walking in sync. For sure, you'll see your fair share of groupies and music lovers when you visit, all posing on the zebra crossing and reliving that album cover. There's also a dedicated graffiti wall where the studio encourages fans to scribble a tribute. Normally, touring the studios is off limits to non-rock stars, 
but for Abbey Road's 90th anniversary in 2021. They opened their doors for an intimate week-long guided tour and a two-day festival with workshops for budding sound engineers and artists wanting to break into the industry. There's rumours they'll do more, so check their website before you come. You might get lucky. Thanks for listening to part one of our two-part episode on London's musical past and present. The second part is available to you right now if you're a subscriber to Circa, and it'll provide you with a second sensational soundtrack to this phenomenal European capital city. Remember to download the Circa app for pictures and maps and notes on the places in this episode. Maybe you'll want to check out our guides for Iceland, Rome, New York City, and many, many more. Or you could just listen to the second part of London, Listen Here, right now. Circa. Love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. <laughs>